I'd like to read a, a verse uh, to you from Isaiah chapter 30. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Our Father, we do long for you. We long for the justice that comes through Jesus Christ. Perfect justice. Lord, we live in a world of injustice. Even in the best of countries, under the best judicial system, we find injustice rampant. And in many places in the world, Lord, justice is not even a word anybody comprehends. Father, we look forward to that day when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and will impose the justice of God on this planet. In the meantime, Father, we do pray that we as your people will, will be just people in our actions, in our thoughts, our desires. And Father, I pray that you will strengthen us in our prayers. I, pr I ask that your people across this land will rise up in prayer for our president, for the leaders of this country, for decisions that have to be made relative to not only national issues, but foreign issues. Particularly, Lord, we pray that somehow you will deal with the evil that is rampant in Iraq and, and uh, amongst the Al-Qaeda groups around the world. Father, we know that you can pull the stinger on those issues, that you can transform even the, the, the most heinous of men of evil. And we ask for your divine intervention. We ask that the will of God might be accomplished even in these matters. Father, we ask you now this day to bless us. May the word we study be carved upon our hearts. The truths, may they be part of who we are. And may we grow in faith and in hope and in our commitment to prayer. We thank you for your faithfulness and love now, Lord. And I thank you for each of these men and women here in this room and pray for your special blessing in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's pretty doubtful that anyone who knows anything about the life of David would call his life dull and uneventful. Even when he was a young man, David's life was a bit unusual even though we might have think of him as mostly sitting on a hillside watching his sheep strumming his lyre while thinking up psalms. But we also know that he killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands. We also know that before he was a full-fledged adult in terms of being a, a real military man, he slew a giant with a rock. These are a bit unusual for most young people. And we also know that once he was brought into the house of Saul, he avoided the spear of Saul twice, barely. And we also know that for at least 10 years, maybe 15, he was chased through the wilderness of Israel, Judea, by the forces of Saul. And then, of course, once he became king, his time was filled trying to build an effective administration. The country had never had one. Remember, Saul was, was more like a clan chief than a real king over Israel. So David had to build the administration that would make Israel a nation. He is the George Washington, if you will, of Israel. And then on top of that, he was an empire builder. He conquered lands far to the north, to the south, to the east, and doubled, tripled the size of the nation of Israel. And his family life was something less 
than ideal as well, right? Adultery, incest, assassination, rebellion. We know that it all finally came to a head when David had been king for many, many years and his son Absalom raised up a rebellion, a massive rebellion, which David barely survived. Rebellion that cost 20,000 lives. But before he could even return to Jerusalem, after that rebellion was over, petty jealousy between the tribes of Israel triggered yet another rebellion, led by this rabble-rouser by the name of Sheba. But for the grace of God, this rebellion could have resulted in even greater bloodshed, and it could have resulted in the permanent split of Israel. Instead, God reunited the nation at the cost of one life, one life. But what we do see in all of this is the foreshadowing of things to come. Because 50 years later or thereabouts, after the death of Solomon, Israel will permanently split into two pieces and will basically remain divided for most of the rest of its existence until even, even still divided even the days of Jesus. Because you know how people in Judea thought of people in Samaria, those, those riffraffed up in Samaria. And, and so the land was never really united until the Zionists established Israel again and a state was, was formed in 1948 in May under the leadership of David Ben-Gurion. The nation of Israel today, though, it may be relatively united, but it isn't united because there are a million Arabs living within the state of Israel who, if given a chance, many of them would not be loyal to Israel. And the nation is definitely not one that's seeking after God today. It's a secular state. So we, we, we see in, in this, although David is a man who we look upon as sort of a model because of the many psalms that he wrote for us in which we find great comfort and great wisdom and great courage, and yet he's a man who was able to write those psalms because of the difficulty of his life. Rarely does anybody, you know, maybe there's nobody who's ever had this kind of a life, but rarely is anybody whose life has just been smooth cruising from birth to death ever going to do, write anything that means anything or has any significance because what's to write? It's the people who've been through hard times, difficulties, trials, and tribulations that are able to pen psalms like those that we read from the hand of David. Well, we are in the 20th chapter of 2 Samuel. We're in this second major rebellion that was called by this man, Sheba. And I think Let's begin reading at the first verse. We did look at the first four verses uh, last time, but let me begin reading with the first verse so that we tie this whole thing together, and I'll read through verse 13 to begin with here. Now, a worthless fellow happened to be there. This is at the time when Judah and the other tribes are arguing over whether, they should have, whether Judah should have waited for the other tribes to get there before they brought David across the river. Now a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David follow, and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Then David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, the, the concubines, whom he had left to keep his house, and placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but did not go into them, 
So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. And if you weren't here last week, let me just say, that verse is a parenthetic statement that just indicates that, remember when Absalom came, and to demonstrate that he really was cutting all ties and he was committing himself wholeheartedly to rebellion against his father, overthrowing his father and taking the reign, that he went in and he had sexual relationships with all ten of David's concubines, whom he had left behind to kind of, you know, state that he wasn't abdicating the throne, but he was just trying to save Jerusalem from the disasters of civil war. And Absalom did this in broad daylight in order to burn all his bridges behind him, you might say. And so what David is doing is saying, well, they have been... Uh, his son had, I mean, you know, for him to have relationship with these women again would be perpetuating incest, so he would not do that. So he just kind of retired them all and kept, you know, kept them, provided for them for the rest of their lives, but they were not ever brought in to David again. And so here's where we pick up. Then the king said to Amasa, call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah. But he delayed longer than the time set, which he had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went out after him, along with the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at Lar, at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened at his waist. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword, which was in Joab's hand, his left hand, obviously. And so he struck him in the belly with it and poured out all his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now there stood by him one of, she of Joab's young men and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. And when he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. As soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Yes, not something you want to read as a pre-meal devotional, but <laughs> nevertheless... Although there's an awful lot of uh, violence here, it just helps us to understand that the real world is a violent world. David is determined to nip this rebellion in the bud. He's not going to let it get out of hand as he did with Absalom. In Absalom's case, he was uncertain what to do. This was his own son, his beloved son. What should he do? You know, could, can he raise up the armed forces to, to fight against his own son? He, you know, he didn't want to see harm come to his son. But in the case of Sheba, he's got no commitment to this guy Sheba. Sheba's not from his tribe or his family, as, of course, Absalom was, his own son. And he knew that if Sheba was allowed to, to proceed without any uh, pursuit, that he would probably be able to raise up forces too large to ultimately 
be defeated. And David had had enough of this. I mean, already it was a vast battle that we read about already of the forests of Ephraim, that great battle that uh, took place, which cost 20,000 men from Israel. And David didn't want to see that happen again. And so he decided to, to pursue Sheba, to try to overtake him, to prevent him from consolidating his position and gang, gathering together the necessary forces to fulfill a coup. Now, he had made a promise. Now, you may, you may remember that we read before. He'd made a promise to the um, tribe of Judah that if you guys will join with me again, I will make the commander of the rebel forces the commander of my army in the repla to replace Joab. And so David does this. He calls Amasa to him, and he gave him the responsibility of raising an army from Judah in order to deal with this rebellion. Now, why did David do this? David did this as punishment to Joab because of Joab's murder of his son Absalom after David had said, please be kind to Absalom. In other words, just arrest him, don't kill him. But Joab wasn't the kind to uh, listen too much to what David had to say if he felt it was harmful to his cause or to Israel's cause. There's evidence here, however, that David doesn't completely trust Amasa. Now remember, Amasa is his nephew, as is Joab. Because when Amasa does not return within the three days appointed, David immediately transfers leadership to Abishai, not Joab, but to Joab's younger brother, Abishai. He makes him commander of the forces of Israel to pursue Sheba. Most likely, Amasa's problem was trying to convince people in Judah to follow him because he had just been the leader of the rebel forces. He had just been defeated by the very forces he's now asking to come and join him on David's behalf. And a lot of people had a hard time <laughs> believing him. Now, wait a minute. Now, you see, you're the commander of the forces in rebellion against David, and now you're telling me David has told you to raise an army on his behalf? I don't think so. So he, he was having a problem. That's why we didn't come back in three days. So what David decides to do is not to wait for a massed army from Judah that Amasa was supposed to be trying to raise, but just to take the units at hand in Jerusalem, the Carathites and the Pelathites, the mighty men, the bodyguard, all of these people, and, and commit them under Abishai's command and tell him to go ahead and pursue Sheba. We, we can't wait. You've got to overtake this guy. I can't wait till a larger army forms. Just take the few thousand you got and, and pursue this man, Sheba. Joab's been demoted. He is now under his younger brother, theoretically. It doesn't turn out that way as we go through the chapter, but that's what supposedly has happened. Abishai is supposed to be in command. Joab goes along with the, uh, the, with the forces. He's supposed to be like second in command or somewhere down the line. And, and the reason that it, it doesn't really work out that way is because the men are used to, to, to listening to Joab. The men are used to serving into Joab. They trust Joab. Not that they don't trust Abishai, but it's kind of like, you know, if you've been serving a particular individual and then his younger brother comes along and supposedly exalted over him, it's hard to make that uh, change. So what we discover in this passage is that they travel from Jerusalem north. And they go north a little ways, uh, right about up in here. They don't have the city on the map here, uh, to Gibeon. Gibeon is about eight or nine miles north of uh, Jerusalem. 
So they march north. They're on their way after Sheba. Sheba is running all the way up to here. So they're pursuing Sheba. They, they only get eight or nine miles, and so they're just uh, a few hours into their journey when they come to the city of Gibeon. And there at Gibeon, Amasa shows up with some of the men that he's been able to recruit. We're, we're not given any numbers. We have no idea how many men are with Amasa. And, and we have this encounter that we read about here in this particular passage. It's seemingly unbelievable encounter. One of the things you discover about Joab is he never pussyfoots around anything. You know? Joab is a man of direct action, a total pragmatist. And he sees Amasa as a threat to him, and so the first thing he does is assassinate him. You know, no negotiation, no nothing else. In the, in the passage we read, he goes up as if he's going to greet Amasa. Remember, they're first cousins. He's going up to Amasa as if to greet him. He's got a smile on his face, probably. And, and, and his sword accidentally drops out of its sheath. Oh, come on. I mean, you know, you have a belt around here. The sword, sword hangs down in a sheath. How's it, how does the sheath get upside down for the sword to fall out? You know, it's a ploy. He, he obviously has his sword in some way so that when he takes his hand, it just falls on the ground. This is as he's coming right up to his, oh, oh, by the way, I dropped my sword. Let me, let me pick up my sword here. <laughs> you know, can't leave it on the ground. Grabs him by the beard, you know, with the wrong hand. You know, you always watch for this kind of a deal, but he's got it in his left hand. You know, I mean, this guy Joab is, is a master assassin. And, and as we read this, if this sounds a little familiar, if there's a kind of a deja vu here, <laughs> yeah, you remember this from before, don't you? Let me, let me just turn back to the passage in the third chapter of Samuel and in verse 26 where we read, And Joab came out from David, and he sent messengers, messengers after Abner. Now remember who Abner was? Commander of Saul's army, who was now serving under Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And so the kingdom was divided because if Ishbosheth was over here and David was over here, down, at, down here, and the two were basically rivals, you could say, for the kingdom. And those who support Saul's family are, are supporting Ishbosheth and, and Abner's commander of those forces, and those who are supporting David are with him. And Joab, because Abner has been defeated now and Ishbosheth is gone, David, Joab fears that David will make Abner commander of the forces in his place, in Joab's place. So what we read in this 26th verse here is that when Joab came out from David, he'd been in to visit with David, and he found out that David had sent Abner on a, on a mission. He sent messengers after Abner, and he brought him back from, from the well at Sirah. And David did not know about what uh, Joab was doing. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak to him privately, and there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Abner had killed Joab's brother, but, but in war, not an assassination, which is what this is. And, and so we see what kind of a man Joab is. Don't you even begin to look at his job or you're a dead man. So, so Joab is a very dangerous uh, individual. He has knocked off Abner as commander of, rival commander. Now he kills his own first cousin, Amasa, because he is seen as a potential threat, as a direct threat to Joab's position as commander-in-chief of the armies 
of Israel. Now, did the sight ring any bells? This is happening at, at Gibeon. Do you remember anything having to do with these people at Gibeon before? Well, if not, you can turn to the third chapter, uh, second chapter of 2 Samuel. And let me read at verse 12. This is the same Abner now before he is murdered by Joab. 2 Samuel 2.12. Now Abner the son of Ner went out from Maonaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and they met at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down one on each side of the pool, which is a, it's a well, actually. Uh, I mentioned to it before, it's uh, about, I forget how many, 50, 70 feet in diameter. It's a deep well, goes way down. And they're sitting on opposite sides of this uh, pool. Then Abner said to Joab, now let the young man or men arise and hold a contest before us. And David said, let them rise. So the idea is here, let the champions fight. And whichever champions win, will declare that side victorious. That's a typical way by which wars have been avoided in history. So they arose and went over by count, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. So 12 young men from each side go at it one on one, it, apparently. So they arose and went over by count, and uh, verse 16, each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so that they fell down together. Therefore, the place is called Helkath Hazurim, which means field of the swords, which is in Gibeon. And that day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. In other words, at Gibeon, there was this battle of 12 against 12. The unfortunate thing of, of the matter was they all killed each other. So nothing was resolved, so a battle was fought. And Joab and Abner had a go at each other, and Abner's forces were defeated. So Gibeon gets to be a pretty bloody place uh, here in the history of uh, Israel. Remember Gibeon was the city who sent out representatives to Joshua and said, oh, we're from very, very far away. We want to have a treaty with you. And they, of course, they were the next city in line that Joshua was supposed to capture. They're going to show up again, by the way, in the next chapter, Gibeon and the Gibeonites. Joab and Amasa are first cousins. That didn't bother Joab. He's got no qualms about killing his own first cousin in order to protect his position. I think he justified what he did in his own mind. Firstly, because he felt David was a fool to trust a rebel. I mean, this is the man who led the forces against David, whose forces, David's forces under Joab, defeated him. Why would you give the defeat? It's, it's like, well, I don't know what it's like, but it's like giving the coach of the team who who wins the Super Bowl, you know, throwing him out and, and bringing the coach from the losing team in and making him, you know, that's a poor comparison, but, you know, uh, in Joab's mind, this was, was pretty, pretty serious. You're a fool, David, to trust a rebel. And now on top of that, David, you're so overly sentimental about that whole Absalom thing. Let's be realistic here. Absalom was a rebel. He would have killed you if he could have. It's better that he's dead. This defuses the whole rebellion. Wake up! Well, the whole army is immobilized because Joab kills this guy right in the middle of the highway. Surrey is lying in the highway and the, his, his army is stunned. This is your own first cousin. 
David has given him, authorized him to command the troops. And you just walk up and kill him. The, the men wouldn't go. One of the young men come out and say, everybody that's for Joab and everybody that's for David, follow Joab and Abishai. And they're all standing there, you know, thunderstruck. What to do? They won't pass this dead body in the road. So this same young man gets the bright idea of dragging Amasa off the road. So he drags him out in the field and throws a cloak over him. And, and finally the guys say, oh, okay, well, we can go now. And so they will follow Joab. You know, it's just a, an, amazing, an amazing thing that we're reading about here. These are real human beings, powerfully impacted by the emotions of what's going on around them. And people who understand this, this rivalry between Joab and Amasa and, and David and, and all this issue, and, and they're kind of caught here in the midst of it all. Well, let's read on at verse 14. 2 Samuel 20, verse 14. Now they went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Abel, even to Beth Maacah, with all the Beerites, actually that should be Bichrites, and they were gathered together and also went after him. And they came and besieged him in Abel-Beth Maacah. And they cast up a mound against the city, and it, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. Then a wise woman called from the city, Hear, hear, please tell Joab, come here, that I may speak with you. So he approached her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He said, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel. Thus they, they ended the dispute, and thus they ended the dispute. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. These are the passages that the liberals want to throw out because they're bloody. But unfortunately, they're real. Sheba and his followers are fleeing north, basically due north. I mean, here's the, the fords where they were crossing, and, and all the hassle probably took on here, uh, occurred here and partly in Jerusalem. And, and so they're, they're fleeing north this way, possibly following the, the, uh, the hill ridge route, as we would call it, this, the route that connects the cities along the top of the ridge here. And he's fleeing all the way north to right about there. That's where he's going to end up. He's trying to garner support. He's trying to garner support from those tribes that were not represented in bringing David back to Jerusalem. Remember, that's how come the whole thing got going here. Uh, some of the tribes said, why didn't you wait to, so we could all be a part of bringing David back? After all, it was our idea in the first place. And, and the men from Judas, you know, used harsh language and said, well, you guys just didn't get here. Just, you know, suck it up, guys. And, you know, back and forth until this, this Sheba 
blew the trumpet and called for a rebellion. And so he's up there in the north trying to garner support, trying to raise up a military force with which to overthrow David, or at least to establish a parallel kingdom, which is really, really uh, probably what he is interested in doing here. It's about 100 miles from Jerusalem up to uh, Abelbeth, Abelbeth, Mayaka. Now, what's interesting is that we find that Sheba barricades himself in this city. Why would he do that? Well, it, it seems that it's probable that he wasn't garnering much support. As he was fleeing north, he wasn't getting a lot of people joining his ranks. You know, as he went along the way, they were saying, who are you? Sheba? Never heard of you. you know, why should we join you? After all, there's no evidence that he was anybody. There's no evidence that he was a noble, certainly not of a royal family. You know, it's possible he might have been somehow connected to Saul, but there's no scriptural support for that. It would just be a, a guess to say that that was the case. At least in Absalom's rebellion, everybody knew the rebel. He was the king's son. He was a man who had been out garnering support for years, parading around the countryside in chariots with men running in front of him saying, here you, here you, here comes the king's son Absalom. So everybody knew he, who he was. But who's Sheba? He might have been known to the Benjamites, but to the rest of Israel, he was a nobody. Now, Abel Beth Maacah is not shown on this map. Here's Dan, city of Dan, which used to be known as Laish. And four miles over here to the west, just across this valley here, uh, was this city. It's located there. This, the name means meadow of the house of the question then, Maaka. Maaka comes from the verb to press. So it could mean from uh, meadow of the house of the wine press. Some say it could mean oppression. Well, maybe. But anyway, uh, he's up at this, this little town. Now notice where this town is. This uh, up, up here, oh, well, it's off the top of the map here. I know you probably can't read it there, but this is Mount Hermon, or Hermon, up here, right here. It's the biggest mountain in this whole area. It, it rises to well over 9,000 feet in elevation. It's usually snow-capped in the winter. It is the source of the Jordan River. Jordan River forms from three branches that drain that mountain. And one of those branches flows through this valley right here. And that's where Abel Beth Maaka is, right over there. Dan is on another one of the branches there, where the, actually the, the river just comes right out of the rocks. Not too far from Dan, the river just literally comes out of the rocks. I mean, it's a spring, a big spring. It's a beautiful place. If you've never been to Israel, uh, if you go to Israel someday, be sure you go there. You know, Caesarea Philippi, that where, where Jesus said, And whom do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a beautiful location there where the water just, just coming right out of the rocks to form one of the branches of the, uh, of the Jordan River. And, and so it's, it's, in a, it's in what's called the Hula Valley, H-U-L-E-H, -E Hula Valley. That's this valley right here. And this is what's called Lake Hula. And here they have it spelled H-U-L-A, like Hula. This is where they first did the Hula. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, this is a small lake compared to the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee here is uh, it's a pretty good-sized lake. 
uh, in, in total area. But Lake Hula doesn't exist today. It's, it's been all drained. There is a, a small pond there uh, for irrigation that's sort of in the basin of what used to be the heart of Lake Hula, but most of it's been drained off because it's wonderful agricultural land in there. But anyway, uh, this, is, this, is, this is the nice part of Israel. When you get up in this north part, it's very green and lush and water and so forth. You get further south, it gets pretty, pretty dry. If Sheba had any real hope of recruiting forces to join him, he couldn't really go any further north than he was. He was about as far north as he could go. Because if he went further north, yes, he'd still be in territory that David controlled as part of his empire, but he's out of the heartland of Israel. And he's in lands in which the dominant people are either Phoenicians or Syrians. Now, will those Phoenicians or Syrians follow him in rebellion against their overmaster David? Probably not. Because who is this guy? I mean, David's just overcome a, ma a major rebellion. It's not too likely that they would join him. So he's not going to go any further north. So the question is, what is he doing so far north in the first place? Well, the answer is not so clear. It's either that uh, he just kept going north trying to recruit uh, forces to join him and he wasn't having much success, or, or he was trying to escape from Joab because he finally discovered Joab was on his tail. We, we don't know uh, exactly what the answer is. All we know is that he barricades himself in this town in the far north of the land. He's a fool. He really is a fool. Because he's trusting in the walls of this town. This is not a mighty city. This isn't Jerusalem. This is just a little town. Population probably not more than just a few thousand. He had a wall around it. But he's trusting this wall to protect him against the armies of Joab. Come on, guy. You know who Joab is, don't you? He may not have known, of course, that Joab was so close to him in, in pursuit. But what we discover in this passage is that Joab presses the attack to the place where he lays siege to the city. Very characteristic in the ancient world to besiege cities. If cities don't automatically open their gates to an approaching army, um, then the army has to lay siege to the city. Of course, the purpose of walls is to defend a city against attackers. But a determined attacker will almost always win a siege. Because it's very difficult for the people inside a city to have enough water and enough food to sustain themselves over a prolonged siege, whereas the army on the outside can range through the countryside to you know, procure what they need in order to support themselves. So a besieged city is, is pretty foolish to uh, not submit unless they have hope that somebody's going to rescue them. In the case of this city, they, they you know, this... This man, Sheba, has come in with a few, we don't know how many followers he had, apparently not a terribly large number, but, but they've received a guest. And so they've shut the gates up because they've received a guest, in effect, is what they've done here. But as I was thinking about this man, Sheba, I was reading a, a verse, uh, I was reading through Hosea, and uh, I read this verse in Hosea, and I thought it kind of uh, applied. Hosea, Joel, Hosea, Joel. Um, it's the last verse of the, of the book of Hosea which says this, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, correct. The righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. 
The ways of the Lord are right, and those who walk with Him will walk with Him in those ways. Those who transgress will stumble. And we see that going on, of course, in the world all the time. And so it is with this man. He has chosen to rebel against the anointed of the Lord. Whatever he thought about David as a character, David was God's anointed leader. And God had not removed his mantle from David. Who was Sheba to try to remove that mantle? Who was Sheba to try to split the land? Who was Sheba to exalt himself? He was a transgressor, and thus he stumbles in the way. And God allows him to trap himself in this city, which becomes now besieged. So what does Joab do? Joab knows that he can sit outside the city and just starve these people into submission, but how long will that take? There have been cities that have withstood sieges for as many as five years. That's a long time to sit outside in a, a city hoping it's going to surrender to you. Most armies cannot remain that long in a siege. This city probably would not have been able to uh, adhere to a siege that long because it was a small town. But uh, Joab's not going to wait. He's a very impetuous and impatient man. You may have noticed as we've moved on uh, through these passages. So he decides he's going to build a rampart. He's going to uh, put siege works up against the walls. He's going to throw dirt against the wall until he can get the dirt high enough so he can run a battering ram at the skinny part of the wall. You know, ancient walls were built like this, A-shaped, thick at the bottom, narrow at the top. And so get up there where you can bash through the skinny part of the wall and get inside the city. And it's a dangerous job trying to put the dirt there because the guys up there are shooting down at you probably. But, yeah, but they figured out ways to do with that too, deal with that. You know, they, they've developed A-frames with wooden surfaces on them, then stretched leather over the A-frames and spread water over the leather so that fire won't light it and then work under the A-frame uh, that's overhead. They called it a turtle and work under there to try to run a battering ram or to put in dirt. I mean, there was, for every attack, there's a counterattack, you know. And, and they worked out these different ways. And so anyway, Joab was in a hurry to capture the city. And so that brings us to the parley. And what's interesting about the parley is it's Joab and a woman from the city of Abel Beth Maacah. What's also interesting is her name is not given to us. And we'll read uh, next week in Ecclesiastes, or next time we have class, why that might have been. It's not necessarily because she was a woman that her name is not given, but she and Joab will figure out a way to save the city and to end the rebel, re re rebellion at the cost of one life. One life. And that would be that of the rebel Sheba. Well, we'll have to pick that up later at that point.